Well, we're about a week away from finishing our Garden to Garden City series, a uh, story that we've been tracking now for um, over a year as we've, uh, as we've been looking at the big picture story of Scripture. And the constant problem that Scripture has been dealing with is this. How can God, who is pure and holy and just and right and cannot stand to be in the, in, in, uh, the presence of sin, how can he live with his people whom he loves but who are impure and sinful and unjust? Because in God's presence, sin gets burnt up. So the two simply don't mix. And as Scripture has been unfolding, this answer has been progressively, um, uh, or this question has been progressively answered. We learned first that sin will be dealt with first and foremost when we see Adam and Eve uh, will have a child, and this child will crush the head of the serpent, Satan. Now, the church has always understood this as a promise that God made that one day, one day, Jesus would come to defeat sin and death. Let's call this the, the snake stomp of promise, and we'll return to it in a little while. And as the story progresses, um, the theme of God wanting to live with his people uh, continues to be unfolded, but not, he's, he's just never able to do so fully. You see, this, the solution to the sin problem, the separation problem, we learn is going to be dealt with through something called faith. And the way this works is that through us trusting in God, through having faith, uh, somehow that's going to solve the problem. That's what the story of Abraham was all about. But Abraham could not see God face to face. He could not be with God. Then we see that the solution to the problem will come through a deliverer who will deliver God's people out of the land of slavery, ultimately to sin. Moses teaches us that, but Moses cannot see God face to face. And then we see that God's way of dealing with the sin problem is through the shedding of blood, through a sacrifice that will stand in the place of a sinner. And we learn this through the priestly and temple system, but even the priests could not enter God's presence and see him face to face. Then we learn that deliverance will ultimately come through a king, a king who fights for, who defends his people, who rules his people with justice and mercy, and through his rule, his subjects, his people will prosper. We learn this through the story of David, but even the great King David, the king of faith, the king who delivers his people, ultimately fails and he cannot be in God's presence. And in fact, God even refuses to let him build a temple for him and he still could not see God face to face. And all throughout Israel's history, this pattern is returned to again and again. God's people wander away from him, and then he sends something to bring them back. He sends a prophet, or he sends a judge, or he sends a king, or he sends another nature, uh, nation to come and punish them and to turn their hearts back to him. And there's this cycle of apostasy that happens. The people are oppressed, they turn in humility to God, he sends them a deliverer, he saves them, and almost as soon as he saves them, their hearts turn back to worshipping other gods, and the cycle continues. And so we learn that the problem is not just sin out there. The deliverance we need is as much from the evil within us, the brokenness in our own hearts. And as the prophets prophesy, they teach us something 
specific. Our hearts are wicked and unregenerate and they produce idols faster than we can tear them down. They are deceitful, our hearts from birth, even from the time we are conceived. And so the problem, the solution to the problem that scripture poses is not just a better king or a better prophet or a better priest. No, actually we need a new heart. God will never be able to live with his people because his people are broken. He cannot be in our midst amongst us until that deep heart problem of ours is fixed. And so God, through the prophets, sends another promise. One day he's going to fix not just our leadership. Yes, he will send us a new king, Jesus. He is coming. Yes, we will get a better David. But also we will get a better heart, a new heart. He says in Jeremiah that I will put my law within them, not just outside them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. This is a promise that God makes that he will change the hearts of his people. And so the Old Testament ultimately closes with this tension. The Messiah will come, God will send a better deliverer, a better king. One day his people will be delivered and when that day comes, we will get a new heart, a living heart. A heart that wants to worship and love and serve him. And then as the New Testament opens, we see Jesus being more born. He is the Messiah. He's not just a man, although he was fully human. He is God himself come down to earth to live with us. And finally, this problem of God living amongst his people is resolved in the person of Jesus. He is literally Emmanuel, God with us, living amongst his people. And he lives this perfect life. And he dies a terrible death. He dies innocent. And when he does, he takes our sin on his shoulders. He takes our sin. He pays for it. He suffers the consequences of our sin. And he dies under God's wrath. And there is a better leader, a better deliverer than Moses, a more faithful man than Abraham, a better king than David, a promised one, God amongst us, and he is killed by the world because the world doesn't recognize who he is. And as he hangs on the cross, God's stored up wrath against sin is poured out on him and he ultimately pays the penalty to Adam and Eve that God had said to them, you must not eat of this fruit or you will surely die. And that death in its fullness is applied to Christ on the cross and he surely dies. But when that happens, the curtain, the hanging in the temple that was separating God's presence from his people is torn from top to bottom. God the Father says, now that sin is atoned for, now that uh, all who live by faith in Jesus... Every one of them, they can now come into my presence because their sins have been taken away. And then at Pentecost, he gives the Holy Spirit to his people. And as his Spirit takes up residence in our hearts, he gives us this new heart, a desire to live for him. He gives us the gift of faith. And everyone who believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord is saved. And we've seen that the story is that God, that this, this word of God starts spreading first to uh, the Jews in Jerusalem, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And they, as they proclaim Jesus more and more, more and more people come to faith. But Satan is not happy about this. This ancient serpent 
is furious. He roars around like a lion and in his fury he wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy God's people because he knows that he has already lost. And so he has been working against God's church, against us for the last 2,000 years. That's what's happening right now. And that is what will continue to happen until we get to our passage in Revelation 19. So this is now our future. And so we meet the serpent, Satan, in our text at some time in the future. And we have to acknowledge that we don't understand exactly the chronology of, of what's happening in the text. It's a little bit fuzzy and it depends a little bit on how you interpret it. But the point in the story here is that at some point in the future, the final battle is coming. Um, we don't know exactly when, but it is coming. And it starts in Revelation 19, and Sally's going to read that for us. Thanks. Actually, step here if you want one. How's that? There you go. Our our passage today is from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written, and no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called Word of God. The armies were in heaven, followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample on the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. He, He has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He called out in a loud voice, saying to the birds flying overhead, Come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the military commanders, the flesh of the Almighty, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of everyone both free and slave and small and great. Then I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and the armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against the army. But the beast was taken prisoner along with the false prophet. He had performed the signs in his presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image with their signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire and burns with sulphur. The rest were killed with a sword. 
that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all, and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. After I had um, <coughs> decided on this passage, I realised that you can't actually tell this story without spilling over into chapter 20. And so I'm going to read you just um, four or five verses from chapter 20 as well. So from verse 1 in chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss, and a great chain was in his hand, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss, closed it, put a seal on it, so that he could no longer deceive the nations until a thousand years was completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. And then skipping forward to verse 7, Then when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out and deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. The number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night, forever and ever. Oh, to have the book of Romans to explain. Uh, there are many things here that we don't know. We don't know exactly how this thousand year reign where Satan is bound works. Some people think that's the period we are in now where as the gospel is proclaimed, people cannot be deceived by Satan and they cannot therefore say that we did not know or understand or were prevented from, um, uh, from turning to Christ. I think that has some merit. But good Christian, uh, Bible-believing people differ on how we are to understand these two chapters. And in fact, probably of um, all of Revelation, these two chapters are the ones over which the most ink has been spilt, particularly about whether Revelation 20 happens after Revelation 19 chronologically. Uh, it seems impossible that that could actually be true for a number of reasons. But the problem is that Revelation 19, we read about how the nations come together to fight against the writer, Jesus Christ, and then they are utterly destroyed. And then in chapter 20, we read about how Satan is released from prison, goes around the world, and gathers all these people who want to come and fight against Jesus. Now, that doesn't seem to make any logical sense. So it seems unlikely, I think, that any people would be left after the events of Revelation 19 uh, to gather together for Revelation 20. But what we have to understand about how we are to interpret this book is that it is kind of um, cyclical in nature. It talks about the same things over and over again, several chapters apart. So, so it's kind of like a spiral that um, gives you different perspectives on the same events and then returns to them again. And I think that probably the most helpful way to understand this is that Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 talk about the same thing at, at a spiritual level. Both of these chapters depict a final battle. The one focuses on how the people will gather together to fight against Christ 
And the other focus is on how Satan will be bound and ultimately completely destroyed. It actually doesn't matter how, how you read it because the point remains the same. One day, there will be a great final battle. One day, there will be a day when the whole world, apart from the faithful, will come and stand against Christ Jesus and Satan will go into the four corners of the earth and he will gather together for him from every source of power, every nation, every king, uh, every military power, he will gather from them people to come and fight against Christ. And he will deceive them all, saying, I have what is right, and what Christ has is wrong and weak. And he will seduce them, and he will say things like, you do not need to bow down to this King Jesus, because he is not real. He doesn't have power. He will say things like, there should be a complete separation between the church and state, so you should rule in a secular way. He will gather together the army of atheists and wage intellectual war against the truths of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he will deceive people by telling them that miracles can't happen, therefore Christianity is but a helpful fiction, a fanciful idea that the weak find helpful to give them meaning in their pitiful lives. He will bring together spiritual people and deceive them and he will give them the sense of being able to connect with the divine by helping them commune with the spirits. And he will deceive people through offering a connection uh, to the dead through spiritists and mystics and people who will tell you how to, how to connect with spirits all the while having demonic influence that will wreck people's lives. And he will bring together the pragmatists who have given up their faith because it no longer was useful to them. People who used to belong to a church until such a time as society changed and made being Christian far more unpopular. And he will tell them and deceive them and tell them it's far more useful to leave, actually, the church because, after all, you'd have so much more money to spend on yourself and more time to pursue the things that really give your life meaning. And he will bring together all the other religions, all of whom in some way, shape or form, requires you to work for your salvation. And he will bring them together under a banner that says, look, every religion is basically the same and they're all different ways to get to God. And look, actually, I am God. And you should say to all these Christians who claim that it has already been done in Christ that they must be wrong because everyone else agrees. And he will deceive them and tell them that we are but an abomination and must be destroyed. And so from every nation and from every person and from every corner of the world, he will draw up his armies to come and wage war against God. And we might even publish books and say God is dead. And it's all very dramatic. The beast goes, he goes to the four corners of the world, he gathers the kings and the generals and the commanders and everyone who wants to answer his summons. And it's like in those great epic movies. In our mind's eye, we see these two armies squaring up to go and make war against one another. 
We see in our mind's eye this picture of an epic battle scene where you've got all the Marvel heroes on one side and all the villains on the other side and they come together to fight one another. Or it's Aragorn standing in front of the black gates of Mordor coming to make war against Sauron and the forces of evil. Or it's the rebel alliance against the empire. I mean, pick your battle here. But it's not what happens in our story, is it? What happens? Jesus comes, riding as a king on his horse, and he's presented in Revelation 19 as the mighty one, the powerful one, the one against who, uh, sorry, the one in, um, who judges in righteousness all those to come and stand against him. And in fact, there is no escape for those who are to be judged. On this passage, Piper says, here, when the whole world is ready for judgment, they are to be as roadkill for the vultures. And Jesus comes in great wrath. It's not going to be private or secret, and it's certainly not going to be pleasant for unbelievers. Because Jesus will come on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory, and the judgment will be like the vultures sweeping in on the corpse of human rebellion. Friends, this will be a dark time for humanity. And if we don't have the right view of God, this can seem too harsh. If we think of God only in terms of kindness and kind of lovey-dovey love, this seems to go against God's character. But remember that these people have come after eons of making war against God, to make a final pitch and to destroy God. Their rejection of him as King of kings and Lord of lords is complete. They have given themselves over to Satan, to the beast. They are worshipping everything other than God. They have rejected God in every conceivable way, despite having had the opportunity to repent for millennia. And all throughout the book of Revelation, if you read it, all these judgments, all these signs that Jesus was coming, his second coming, um, even in the destruction of the great city of Babylon last week, we see that none of these things actually help make people turn their eyes from their rebellion against God. This is the time when God's patience has finally run thin. Time is up. And the battle is coming. And in chapter 20, we read this account of the battle. We have in our picture, the the mind's picture, these two uh, great armies next to each other. And this is how chapter 20 gives it to us. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and their beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and there they will be tormented for day and night and forever. That's it. That's the whole battle. You don't hear about a mighty sword clash or um, (coughs) someone using a ring of power to defeat some sort of evil creature. That's it. We get two verses. It lasts but a flash of a moment. So quick was the defeat of the beast, the Antichrist, and all that follow him, that in essence our text only gives us the results. 
Satan, the beast, is captured, the serpent is captured, they're thrown into the lake of fire. This unholy trinity that Revelation teaches us, Satan sets himself up as, is completely destroyed and they are thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. And that is the end of the battle. Along with the entirety of humanity who stood against Jesus in his word, they end up under God's judgment. That is the power of Christ. And he does it in an eye blink. We should shiver in our boots a little when we belittle Christ. I started this morning by saying sometimes we don't take Jesus seriously. We are thankful for the salvation he gives, but often it is true of my life, certainly, and I suspect yours, that we don't take our salvation that seriously. That we consider some sort of sin we want to commit and we think, oh, I'll just ask forgiveness for that. That'll be fine. And in some sense, you're right. It will be fine. But these two chapters give us this glimpse of the power and majesty of Jesus. And we... May it be that we are struck down with awe and fear of him. Not because we will be burnt up and thrown into the lake of fire because we have faith, but because of the great might and power that he has that he chooses not to use on us because he's taken that on himself. Friends, may we take this opportunity again, perhaps today, maybe for the first time, to turn from our hatred and disdain and disrespect for who Jesus is. And may you and I never treat him in our lives as if his kingship over us doesn't actually matter. When we say, King of kings and Lord of lords, we should mean it. Because this is the same man who gave the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. That man is the same warrior king here who one day will come and defeat evil, rain down fire from the sky, and destroy all who stand against him in the blink of an eye. Do not treat him with disdain. Because this is the future and this will happen. Chapter 20 finishes like this, from verse 11. This is after Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. And earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. And I also saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what is written in the book. And the sea will give up their dead that were in it. And death and Hades will give up their dead that were in them. And each was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life 
was thrown into the lake of fire. All of us, all of us, all of us, will one day stand before the king and he will judge us in accordance with works. That sounds wrong, doesn't it? But it says here, we will be judged according to works. All we have to decide is will we in faith accept the works of Christ, the perfect life that he has lived, as applied to us when we trust in him in faith? Is that the works that we're going to be judged on? Or will we reject Jesus, which means our name is not written in the book of life, and be judged according to our works? Which will it be? Will you be judged according to your life? Do you really want that? Or would you rather be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, be judged according to his perfect life, trust in him, and make sure your name is in the book of life? Because he is coming. He is coming. Let's pray. Lord, as we stand in awe before you, for not only what you have done, but in today particularly for what you are yet to do, we fall humbly before you. We confess our sin in not taking our salvation seriously. And as you challenge us again this morning, May we turn and repent, trust in you, live a life worthy of the calling which we've received, of the gift of life that you've given us. Thank you that you clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. And when we forget, Lord, may we turn our eyes to Jesus and look full on his wonderful face so that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.